Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or other healthcare provider, and you're interested in building a successful group practice, you found your primary resource for some of the industry's best business education. My partner, DeWalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Well, welcome everyone to season two, episode 23 of the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. That's right, we're still trying to solve this associate problem, and today it's all about pathways to partnerships. I'm gonna compare, contrast, and consider some differences between restricted stock units and profits interest units. These are questions we get a lot, and I'm gonna slice and dice a lot of things for you today on the podcast. It's probably going to be a lot of note-taking and a lot of volume in a hurry. So get your pad and pen ready. Of course, brew another cup of that wonderful meal of coffee. The Group Practice Accelerator podcast is on the air. Welcome everyone once again to the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. I am Perrin Desports and I am your host and I am the one <laughs> that takes a lot of the calls uh, from cl- uh, prospective clients and a lot of other people in the uh, in the audience about what we've done with uh, associate equity models, uh, specifically something we call pathways to partnerships. Uh, DeWalker and I, coming from, I guess, a corporate America background, were the beneficiaries, if you will, uh, the recipients uh, of something called restricted stock units in our prior lives. Um, I had those at Patterson as a general manager and restricted stock units and profits interest units are um, a commonplace uh, equity award in corporate America. The idea is that um, much like for those of you building group practices, a corporate America type company wants to attract, reward, and retain their high-performing employees and their management leadership, um, the people who are really having their fingers on the dials and, and moving the levers and everything. And the way you do that uh, in a corporate America setting uh, is is through some type of an equity award. Uh, you've all heard of something called stock options. Uh, the the key word in stock options is option, meaning options to buy uh, or option to buy rather. Uh, whereas a restricted stock unit is one that you don't technically have to buy, um, but you can earn through superior performance, restricted stock or profits interest. And like I say, I had these at Patterson uh, and they were wonderful for me as a, as a general manager. Um, I was involved with growing revenue for the branches I ran, was involved with improving profitability for those branches. And the restricted stock units that I had the opportunity to earn were based around the performance of my branch. If I could drive revenue and I could do it profitably and expand margin, then I could accelerate the vesting uh, on those um, uh, awards. And they were calculated based off the dollars of the business that I ran. Uh, It's not too dissimilar from the models that we reverse engineered 
for group practices. The difference is that nobody had really done them in, in this world of group practices before, yet they're commonplace in corporate America, both restricted stock units and profits interest units. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna differentiate between the two in just a second, but I wanna create some context here. And the first piece of context is that historically, dentistry has been a very uh, has been dominated if you will by solo practices usually a solo dentist in a solo location and when he or she builds that location up to be some level of, of performance and wants to uh, and value and wants to start throttling back or even you know possibly segueing out they bring on an associate sell half of the business or something like that. And then the associate has the right to buy out the other half and relatively short or, and then the senior dentist segues out. And in a group practice, what we found when we came into the world of group practices was first and foremost, everybody we spoke with said, you know, I'm turning over associates left and right. Can you help me solve this problem? Uh, and I like to say, DeWalker and I aren't the brightest bulbs in the drawer, but if you ask us the same question 10 times in a row, the bulb finally starts to go off and look at one another and be like, uh, well, somebody's got to figure out a, a, a solution to that problem. Well, what are the solutions right now? The solutions, uh, when we first encountered it, were no equity for any associate unless they bought into the business. Um, and so a founder or founders might be building a group practice that was you know heavily burdened by debt or only had a couple of locations and the the performance wasn't really great yet you could see it coming in the future right but it would it would value pretty low if you had to value it from a, a buy-in standpoint so a lot of founders didn't want to part with equity early on because if they did whatever the associate would be buying in at would be a pittance compared to, to what the risk of the the original risk of the founders or the valuation of the business and that just didn't make any sense but the associates didn't want to stay if they didn't have a stake in the future so there's there's the conundrum right i mean how do you achieve that and and what do you do with it and so if you're an enterprise level dso maybe you can afford to build a recruiting engine and just constantly turn over associates and and you don't really need to to create that big of a uh, an opportunity for them or if you're a different type of an enterprise level dso and you're acquiring practices and you're allowing the the owner or founder of that practice to roll equity in then they become a minority partner in the enterprise level but it still doesn't solve the associate problem and so this is something where in order to make it beneficial for the associate you have to create an outcome that would equate to or approximate or rival the economic outcome they could create on their own if they went to a bank and borrowed a bunch of money and bought their own practice and then paid down the loan over 10 years. So when we started modeling it, the thought was, okay, if an associate goes it on their own, they're going to have a 10-year note right? They got to pay that off to the bank over 10 years time. So the, what's the projection? The projection is 10 years. And to think through what the economic outcome would be at the end of that 10-year period, 
kind of comes back to today in terms of what's the value of the practice that they would otherwise be buying. And if if the value of that practice is somewhere around, I don't know, 750, 800,000, maybe even as much as a million dollars, going to pay down the loan, it's going to value at 80% of collection. So it's an $800,000 note. Then you can calculate the impact on you know, free cash flow to the borrower, the young associate. You're going to grow the business a little bit, but probably at the end of the year or at the end of the 10-year run, you're probably going to end up somewhere between 800 and a million in terms of valuation. Uh, and they're going to own it outright because they will have paid off the loan over 10 years. So that's the number at the end of 10 years that you're trying to solve for. Somewhere probably 800, a million, one and a quarter, something in that range to say, look, you can take the risk, you can borrow the money, you can fight with the staff, you can battle the supply companies and the labs and the banks and everybody else. You can get paid last as the business owner, just like I have over my career. And you can, at the end of that 10 years, if you survive, then you're going to have a business that's yours roughly valued at a million dollars. Or if I can create an opportunity for you to earn the same economic value of shares in my business, and you don't have to borrow the money, you don't have to take on a loan, you don't have to get paid last and fight with the staff and all the third parties and everything like that, wouldn't you be better off being part of a larger boat in the, in the group that we have here? So if you can create as the founder, if you can create the same economic outcome for the associate at the same time frame, 10-year period, then the decision point is, are they predisposed to, to want to do it on their own or are they uh, more amenable to being part of a team? And, and that's the decision point for the associate. For the founder, the key here is that through either profits, interest, or restricted stock, you know, you've taken on the risk to start the business, to, to borrow all the money, to suffer those sleepless nights I just alluded to. So for you, it's not a matter of just what we call taking dilution, meaning allowing the associates to earn that dollar value, but they got to be able to help you increase the value of the shares that you hold too. So this has to be win-win, right? I mean, it can't, it can't be something where you just simply give up equity. You'd never do that. If you've heard us talk about this through the years or from the stage or some of what we've written or presented, equity, equity is never given away. It's always bought or it's earned. And in this case, if it's earned, it has to be earned through superior performance, performance by the associate. So if they perform, and they continue to perform, they're gonna earn more equity. But through their performance, they're gonna help you increase the stability and the value of the business through improved profitability. So why, why are we confident about that? Well, let's go back and think about the dynamics of a typical dental practice, just in and of itself, let alone a group. You've got some level of fixed costs, you know, your rent, your um, uh, capital equipment costs, your, uh, for all intents and purposes, your, your staff and everything like that. But the beauty of a dental practice is that it has high marginal profitability. And what, what we mean by that is every additional dollar of revenue 
that you're able to generate drops a lot of profitability to the bottom line. I mean, you got to pay if it's if it's doctor driven clinical revenue, you got to pay the associate some some percentage of every dollar they collect. There's potentially some lab impact. Potentially there's some um, uh, consumable supplies impact and a couple of others. But you know, by and large, you're probably at least 50 cents on every dollar drop into the bottom line once you clear the threshold of um, uh, once you clear the threshold of uh, your uh, fixed cost. So in this context, the marginal profitability of dental practices is tremendous and you can use it to your advantage. So how does that actually work? Well, what you want to think about is when when the associate has a goal to hit and only above that goal do they earn equity. So now you you have a goal for them to hit and it's based on their personal collections. Well, when you increase the goal every year, hopefully they increase their collections every year. And by that, you're driving more top-end revenue. And as long as you continue to run a profitable business, you are going to drop more profitability to the bottom line at an even faster rate. So the idea here is that if they're going to earn a lot of equity awards, they're going to help you improve the top-end performance of the business because their equity awards are driven off of collections. But you and I both know that as long as you continue to run a good business, that the likelihood is that you're going to expand profitability at a faster rate. And if that's the case, and if you do expand profitability at a faster rate, the holdings that you have in the business may no longer be 100%. It may drop to 95, 90, 85, 80% of the business at the end of 10 years, but it's a much more valuable entity. So when we ask the question of people who are first learning this, the the, the question is really, do you want to be a 100% owner of a business valued at $2 million or the 80% owner of a business valued at $10 million? And when you start to think through that aspect, you understand that um, it's a scenario where it's not the, the percentage, the 100% that you own, it's the value of the shares that you hold, in which case 80% of valued at 10 million. So as long as you maintain voting control, uh, which if we set the tables up correctly, you will, um, it's really more about the value of the holdings that you, you have after the associates are in equity. So the theory behind it is that it's a win, it really is a win-win scenario. If they're earning equity, they're helping you improve the business. Um, and it's beneficial to them because they no longer have to take on any of the risk to do it. So it's a model that works really well you know, in group practices just the way it does in corporate America. Now, there are a lot of other things to consider um, around the world of uh, uh, partners. There's the voting control thing that I just touched on. And I have to go through this on a lot of calls with prospective clients because they everybody has the fear of getting voted off their own island. And that is categorically not what we're trying to achieve here. Um, if, if you allow multiple associates to earn into the business, we want our founders um, uh, always to be north of 75 to 80% ownership at the end of a 10-year run. Uh, and the reason for that is due to what is usually structured in the operating agreement as supermajority control. 
supermajority in terms of voting rights has to be defined in the documents, but usually it's somewhere north of two thirds and somewhere south of 80%. So as long as you own 75 to 80%, the likelihood is that you're going to retain uh, supermajority control of the entity. If you have supermajority control of the entity, it also means that you have majority control of the entity. And then there's the the day-to-day governance that's managing member or managing partner uh, derived that is the day-to-day decision-making in terms of uh, moving the business forward. Corporate governance, voting control, and things like that is a very real consideration. It's totally understandable for you to, to have questions in your mind around that because chances are most of the people in this audience own their own businesses outright uh, and they've never had a partner in those businesses. And so they, you know, the dynamics around, well, who gets the last word? Like who's going to have day-to-day decision-making and all that? That's a very real concern. And it's a very real uh, conundrum for people who've never had to confront it before. So it is something that we, uh, we, we lead the process with our clients on. And hopefully it's an educational process in addition to actually drafting the legal document. Um, there are other things around like uh, termination, if you will, uh, because both profits, interests, and restricted stock are real equity. If you ever hear of the term phantom equity, phantom equity doesn't have distribution rights and it doesn't have voting rights. And it really is more of akin to a sort of like a profit sharing program. Um, but restricted stock and profits interests do uh, have voting rights and distribution rights. They are real equity, which is to say, if you have an associate that earns equity in the business and they resign in good standing, or if you have to terminate them for some reason, you do have to buy out the amount of equity that has vested. And the way you kind of work through that is you have some type of a, uh, a resignation notice, let's say it's six months. And as long as the, the associate who's earned, you know, the partner who's earned equity in the business gives you the full six months notice, resigns in good standing, takes good care of the team and everything like that, um, and then doesn't haul off and set up across the street from you, um, then you have to buy out that associate's position in terms of the amount of equity that they've earned. The way you buy them out is governed in the documents, but it's usually some type of um, a, a longer term buyout schedule, three to five years in length, quarterly installments at a nominal carrying rate. Um, but it's a way for you to basically um, pay them out over time without having to take on debt to do it. So we don't wanna have the business uh, encumbered by any debt for the sake of facilitating somebody else's exit. Um, Or if it's a matter of termination for cause, the associate loses their license or does something something bad uh, and it impacts the business and you have to fire them. Uh, there could be some type of a, uh, a penalty clause or a reduction in value. Uh, so in that situation, it's still a payout over time, but maybe at a reduced value. Now, the other thing I mentioned I touched on uh, was a, a phrase called vesting uh, schedule. What is a vesting schedule? Well, a vesting schedule means that um, when somebody earns equity, it doesn't all become theirs right away. It takes some period of time for it to fully become theirs, usually three to five years. 
why is that? And what, what does that technically mean? What it means is that you don't want to create an uh, equity incentive program for a high-performing associate, uh, have the high-performing associate blow away their goal, earn a huge amount of, of equity in the first year, turn around, spike the football and say, hey, doc, thanks for the good ride. I'm out of here. You know, that defeats the whole purpose. The, the whole purpose of this is allowing them to earn equity without actually having to buy it and retaining them for the long haul. If you're going to retain them for the long haul, you want something called the golden handcuffs. And the golden handcuffs are commonplace, again, in corporate America, and they are usually achieved through a vesting schedule. So what that means is in that case of the high-performing associate that blows away the goal, earns a lot of equity, that equity award might be $100,000, but it might vest equally over five years. So at the end of the first year of vesting, 20 grand is theirs. Second year, an additional 20 grand for a total of 40,000 of the 100 originally that they earned. Third year is in another 20 to make total of 60 out of that initial 100, so on and so forth. The idea is if they leave voluntarily or involuntarily, they're walking away from all unvested shares. So it protects you from people earning uh, a huge award and then leaving um, uh, abruptly. Uh, and that's the retention piece. We're trying to build a business for the long haul, and we're trying to bring in partners who share our vision and want to be part of it. And, and the key really there is retaining them for the long haul. So um, a vesting schedule is, is usually very conducive to doing that. Um, there's obviously a lot more to these programs than simply what I, I named, um, uh, but those are some of the highlights that I probably address with, I'd say, 80% of the prospective client calls that I take. So let's talk about profits, interests, more and, and restricted stock units more uh, specifically in terms of comparing and contrasting, because everything I just rattled off and everything I just named uh, is applicable to both. But where they start to differ is in kind of the mechanics of it. So profits, interests, this is a broad generalization, but works very well in a practice level scenario. Um, the founder or founders took some level of initial risk. We see this a lot in de novos, honestly. So you, you borrowed a half a million dollars to build and equip the practice. Um, and there's some threshold of value that needs to accrue to you to compensate you for the risk that you took and the genius that you have and the systems and processes and all that kind of stuff. The associate at a practice level is the beneficiary of all that. They didn't have to take on any of the risk of it. So they're not gonna earn equity unless they can help you drive the performance of the practice above a certain threshold and create further equity, both for you and for them. The value that they help you create is shared between you and them, split in some way. Could be 50-50, could be 60-40, that's to be determined through the model that we build. But the idea is that maybe, just to follow on the example I used before, um, that if, you, if it cost you 500,000 to start the practice, maybe we set the initial threshold evaluation at a million dollars. So the associate comes in, works really hard, helps you drive collections and profitability and you know, keeps the staff glued together and maybe even mentors a, a younger associate or something like that. And 
they help you drive the business to some level that creates total of $2 million worth of valuation. Well, the first million dollars worth of valuation accrues to you because you took the risk to personally guarantee the loans. The second million of valuation that the associate helped with is shared potentially, let's say 50-50. So in that context, if you sold the business in its entirety for that particular practice that values at $2 million, the first million would accrue to you for taking the original risk. And the second million would be split between you and the associate for them helping you um, build a business to a higher level. Your total um, outcome from that practice sale would be one and a half million and their total outcome would be 500,000. Still not a bad gig for the associate when they never had to take on any risk or guarantee any loans to begin with. So hopefully that kind of helps in terms of profits interest. The key is obviously determining the valuation uh, of the practice in its current form, understanding the risk, creating a threshold, and figuring out um, the, the, the split above that threshold and the way that the equity is going to be shared between the founder and the associate. Uh, this, again, does have a vesting schedule tied to it, usually five years. So there is a retention mechanism. Um, but this works really well in a de novo and in a, uh, uh, a solo or a, a practice level equity arrangement. Um, we uh, we like them in that context, and they're usually pretty pretty easy to think through and pretty easy to illustrate, um, and usually creates pretty good outcomes on it. So that's profits interest units. Restricted stock is a little bit more complicated. Restricted stock tends to work better in in a in a group practice scenario where um, the practices are established, not de novo. Uh, and there is a, a management company or DSO level uh, scenario in play. Um, the associate uh, always has a collection goal that is unique to him or her. Um, and that goal goes up every year. Uh, so restricted stock units are more like an annual award that, that refreshes and renews every year and encourages um, uh, performance over a longer period of time, whereas profits interest is more of like a, uh, a uniquely established parameter um, with a floor of a threshold to it. So the annual collection goal for the associates in restricted stock goes up each year. Hopefully their performance exceeds that. And if it does, uh, they're able to earn more equity every year. The founder, again, ultimately takes dilution, but the dilutive impact is uh, less than the, the gain of the value of the company overall. So there are a lot of different parameters here uh, when we build these models, because you have to, you have to model out, uh, when you're doing RSUs, you have to model out um, uh, collections at, a, at an associate level and growth, um, uh, certainly both in their individual collections and the way the goal goes up. Uh, you need to model out the actual award percentage as well as the vesting schedule. And then you need to model out the growth of both the practice and the overall business, potentially through either acquisitions or additional de novos to figure out where the entire business is going to end up uh, at the end of 10 years, not just where the practice is going to end up at the end of 10 years in the case of uh, profits interest. So again, vesting schedule in there, much like we said before, 
but restricted stock is is something that is more like a, 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 a series of 10 annual award opportunities based on performance. Uh, but we're ultimately trying to achieve the same economic dollar outcome either way. It's just a matter of what's the right tool in the toolbox and uh, for the associate and what's the uh, best way of achieving the overall goal for the founder. Um, so these are, are both scenarios where ultimately the associates help you improve the overall performance of the business, the stability of the business, and certainly the valuation of the business. And if they are able to help you do that, then that means that they're going to help you create a greater economic outcome and whatever amount they may earn over that period of time will pale in comparison to you being the founder uh, with the, with the ultimate outcome of the much more valuable enterprise. So, you know, I, I hope, this is um, a little bit more educational for y'all. I know it's it's tough to follow uh, verbally and through a uh, uh, through a podcast, but we get so many calls um, around associates and equity and and you know how to how to solve that problem and and it's something that I think we're going to encounter more on in the, the coming years, because there's going to be a lot more opportunities to hire associates. And if entrepreneurs continue to build group practices, I, I go back to what I've said in prior podcasts, which is that if you don't have an equity plan in place for associates, you're just going to create a rat race scenario for yourself. So profits, interest, and restricted stock uh, units are great ways to, uh, to achieve those outcomes. And you can even do something in each instance called a capital call to, to start the process where if you want to allow the associate to buy in for a nominal amount, say up to 100 grand or 50 grand or 200 grand or something, you can do that if you want them to kickstart the program too. So it sort of can be a, a hybrid approach or a, the best of both worlds scenario. Uh, I hope that helps. I hope it creates a little bit of clarity. And when you start thinking about pathways to partnership, probably worth it to consider restricted stock and profits interest. So if you've got any further questions, feel free to hit me back at Perrin at PolarisHealthcarePartners.com. Stick around. We'll be right back with some additional thoughts and to wrap up the show. Thanks again for being with me on the show today. I failed to say at the outset that I guess for a lot of you who do know me, you know that I came from a family-held business uh, called Thompson Dental Company early on. In April 2002, we sold that business to Patterson, uh, and I was fortunate enough to stay on with Patterson for 15 years and had a pretty decent career there. They were really good to me, and, and I really learned a lot about business. One of the things I don't talk about too often, though, is that growing up in a family business... I kind of got a different look at ownership, equity, the dynamics around a family business, dynamics around family members that didn't work in that business and the challenges that it kind of created. When we decided to sell the business, it wasn't because of operational or financial concerns or needs. It was really more due to poor equity transition planning from my my grandfather to my father and to, to our family. Um, and that that created... Uh, a less than ideal scenario. I'll try to be diplomatic about that. My point is, though, that I learned the value of equity at an early stage. And when I get to talk about it, when I get to spend time with people, and when I get to, to share some of what we do, 
Um, I have a belief in it because it, I've seen the impact that it makes in group practices, but I've also been able to understand it at an earlier stage and a more thorough level and how, how not to do it. So I hope some of what I've given you in terms of guidance does bring some of that to, uh, to light and, and share a little bit of uh, light on, on some of those equity considerations. We're also going to link to a webinar that I recorded on this subject, take you through something that you could see visually. Um, and hopefully that will help out um, a bit in addition to what you've heard here. So we'll link to that in the show notes. And as you have questions, comments, uh, concerns, or anything else around uh, equity valuation and, and associates, I encourage you to, uh, uh, to follow up with me. Again, you can reach me directly at Perrin at PolarisHealthCarePartners.com. Really appreciate you being in the audience. Um, and I hope you got a lot out of today's episode. Uh, if you do, please leave us a rating and a, a comment um, on any of the uh, Apple, TuneIn, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, any of those, because the ratings do help the show a lot. And we certainly appreciate all the kind compliments. Thanks so much for being a uh, listener and a subscriber. We'll see you on the next episode.